0: It's called a vocation. they yeah, vendetta, These aren't isolated cases. They're organizing for a reason. What for? They don't want to wipe us out. They need us. Exactly. So what's changed? Our capacity for self-destruction. It grows at an exponential rate. You're right, of course. They don't mean us any harm. They want to save us. That doesn't sound so bad. And the only way they can save us is by controlling us. If people like you don't take a stand now, do you know where your loved ones are going to be in 50 years' time? Battery farms. Believe me, our free-range days are over.
1: Welcome back to Who and Company. This is episode 62. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. This month's guest is a longtime Doctor Who
2: podcaster and one of our co-hosts on The Doctor Who Podcast. Ian Dudley joins the company to discuss his Doctor Who origin story and how he got into podcasting via the DWP.
1: Then it's a code five as Ian brings along his pick of the month, the 1998 UK vampire series Ultraviolet. We talk about the stellar ensemble cast including Idris Elba, how scientifically the show treats vampirism, and whether or not it could be rebooted today. But before we get to Ian, I had the pleasure of talking to actress, writer, and director Jane Slavin about her experience on Episode 2 of Ultraviolet and the recent Dalek Universe series in Big Finish. And all that's coming up right after this.
0: Your mother had an affair with him. She took care of his investments and then he moved on to you. Have you got a thing about him as well? I can't see why you protect him otherwise. I mean, it's not like he's family or anything. Maybe he feels like family. He's been around so long. Is that what you want? Were you terrified you would end up like your mother? Cos it seems to me she wasn't good enough for him.
3: I only take those who want to go. That is a lie. He begged my mother to go with him. She refused.
0: And you think she made the wrong decision?
3: Well, you'd have to ask her that. My five-year-old daughter didn't choose to go. They don't just recruit, they kill. You're the ones running the extermination programme. You're like Nazis. Just because they're different. They're entitled to fight back. It's war.
1: Please welcome back actress, writer, director, published novelist, and friend of the show, Jane Slavin. Hey, Jane.
3: Hey, nice to see you again. I can nice actually to. see you this time.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, I saw earlier that your, uh, your attempt to make pesto didn't go so well.
3: Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it wasn't that it was bad. It was just it wasn't as good. It did cost an absolute fortune to make and um it was a bit you know huh? i was expecting it to taste like i'd been watching i <laughs> had been watching the real housewives of new jersey Ooh. and um, i know these are very low influences here but there was a <laughs> whole thing on italian food and pesto and making it with a pestle and mortar and i thought yeah i just i love doing things like that i love making hummus and things uh, no this was this was not good well that's all yeah, right. It, i mean it costs it costs such a lot of money and it's just this <laughs> tiny little jar that i've made it's yeah no i'm not doing that again it's a waste of time
1: right well i also discovered you are a world-class hula hooper is that right world class <laughs> <laughs> i don't know
3: where did you get that from
1: oh i saw it in your bio oh my goodness
3: me I do, you know, I've I hula hoop occasionally in my garden, mm-hmm. um, but I wouldn't say I was world class <laughs> or even street class or even in the house class.
1: Oh, but, street class. Yeah. Yeah. There's a group that meets uh, meets up around here at the park near my house during the summer and they all hula hoop, uh, if that's a proper verb. And they play play guitar, recorders, whatever else anyone wants. Oh, to bring. my God.
3: Yeah, They're, that is amazing, though, isn't it? Yeah, I've actually. In fact, let me just show you. Hold on. I've, I have a recorder here. With oh, me. <laughs> nice.
1: Very nice. <laughs> Very so, nice.
3: Um, yeah, it's all a bit retro hula hooping and recorders, isn't it? Or do you think we're all trying to recreate our childhoods?
1: Oh, nothing wrong with that.
3: Yeah, I think that's what I was doing with my hula hooping.
1: So our other guest this month has chosen Ultraviolet as their pick of the month you were on here a few years ago and we talked about uh the fall and rise of reginald perrin Mm. and uh that was a lot of fun do
3: you know i can't believe it was a few years ago though because i know it was like lockdown lockdown happened and they're like dog years aren't they those years where we spent recording in the cupboard and (laughs) not seeing people for months on end and it's uh, true. I, I I can't believe those years have gone. I was supposed to start rehearsing a play the week of lockdown, mm-hmm. and I'm just about to start rehearsing it now. Wow! Two years later, I know. Wow! Can't can't quite believe those years it just disappeared.
1: I know. Um. So did it all? Did it go okay for you as well as it could be? And um, the, the
3: lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was lucky enough, you know, I a lot of my work is audio, so I was lucky enough to be able to just record in my bedroom in the wardrobe and not not starve. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, knew, I know so many freelancers who would just cut loose, who just didn't do anything for that whole time, you know, especially people in theatre and really... And lots of TV stuff was canceled or postponed or pared down because the budgets, they're spending so much money on COVID security. They have to, you know, cut the cast in half. So
1: I would imagine, so yeah, especially yeah, in theater so, when you don't have an audience. Yeah.
3: Oh, no, terrible, terrible. So even if they could get the cast, whether they'd get people in to see it, you know, it, yeah. impossible. I did, I went to the theater this week and, It was the first time I went to Hampstead Theatre in London and it was the first time the theatre was packed and there was a queue around the block and it was just, oh God, it was, I felt a big whoosh of optimism that maybe we can do this, you know.
1: That's great. So
3: yeah, I was lucky with my lockdown um, and I was lucky I've got my daughter, she's 18, we get on really well, thank God. (laughs) And um, so we were here together not going insane well i mean we did go a bit insane (laughs) you know we're not enough for each other just two people but it was you know we we also helped each other greatly
1: yeah that's good so um we were talking about ultraviolet this month and as Mm -hmm. i'm watching episode two all of a sudden a a beautiful Jane Slaven pops up on my screen and I'm like, what, what is, I had no idea you were in there. So, uh, how did the part of Danny Ashford come about? Oh, I remember it. I remember
3: the meeting. It's not often you remember the meeting for a job, but I went to the meeting and it was just before Christmas. And, um, I always got jobs just before Christmas and I hadn't until this, this moment, and I just, I read the script and just said to Joe, you have to give it me. You have to give me this part. I loved it so much. I didn't know anyone, I didn't know who was going to be in it. I just knew that I had to play this part. Um, and um, they gave me the job. So all, almost on the spot, which was fabulous. And then um, uh, and then they gave me squash lessons. <sighs>
1: oh going. right
3: yeah i had my own personal squash coach it was fantastic i thought <laughs> i really i long for a job like that where they give you personal trainer or they give you a squash coach god i really enjoyed it i loved playing squash especially with somebody that good who oh, yeah. always got the ball back to me and you were talking about
1: Oh, I'm sorry. You were talking about Joe, which is uh Joe Ahern, who worked on Doctor Who also. But uh, yeah, because we wrote and directed this, right?
3: He did. And we became he we became friends. I think it might have been his first directing gig, mm-hmm. but we became friends forever. After that, we meet a lot to this day. And um yeah, I love him. And in fact, this summer I was away filming in Budapest with Joe. He was directing a series for Channel 5 um, over here uh, called Deadline. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it was great to be reunited with him. He's fantastic. He's a great director, really is. Yeah. He's and- really um, personal. He he takes everybody aside. And when, when he first does it, he takes you aside and kind of whispering in your ear and he's saying various things to you. And <laughs> you think, <laughs> oh, my God, am I doing it wrong? And then you see he does it to every single person on the set. So he's very, he's very personal, he's very generous. And he's very um, whether it's a good or a bad note, he he it's your own personal, you're not humiliated ever. You're not, you know, even if you were doing it really wrong, no one else will know, you know, because we're mm-hmm. all getting the same private notes. He's fantastic, he really is, he's very funny as well. That's um, great. Yeah. So it's 2020. And- 20 some years ago now isn't it and we're still yeah friends,
1: so. yeah that's um and working with jack davenport and a fairly new actor called idris elba must have oh, been fun <laughs> oh, oh, oh idris <laughs>
3: i thought i just there was something there was something about idris that was so he's so he's so he's he's so sexy so I felt like, um, you know, a, a, one of those insane characters on a comedy show because I felt like I was at every opportunity I was secretly, sneakily touching. Oh, sorry, Idris. <laughs> I've just got to, you know, felt really like a dirty old woman or something. He's, he's, he's gorgeous and he's so bright and he was very humble and brilliant, he's a brilliant actor. Um, yeah. And Joe said he. I. I thought I was keeping it very secret that I was lusting after him. Everyone, I mean, everyone, male and female, lusts after Idris. Um. And Joe said, he said, I think I even remember you chasing him around the set at one, sit- <laughs> at one stage. I was so sure I didn't. Um. But anyway, I think that's all in Joe's head. I think he's just being mean to me. But yeah, Idris was, Idris was really, really good. And Jack Davenport, I just, re- I just read a book called Asylum by mm-hmm. Patrick McGrath, and um, it was dedicated to Jack Davenport. So the first thing I said to him was, "Are you Jack Davenport of Asylum fame?" And he said, oh, God! somebody's read the book. So, <laughs> yeah, scratchy, quite. I think it won the Booker Prize or something. I don't think it was like an unknown book or something. But, yeah, Jack, it was great to work with Jack. And also um, uh, Susanna Harker, she was mm-hmm. great, absolutely mm-hmm. great. And we laughed pretty much constantly. I love her. I'm still in touch with Susie as well. So, yeah, it was, a great. It was a great job.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it was. Um, the last time you were here, you talked about playing Ann Kelso in the Fourth Doctor Adventures, and I was so sad that that character had to leave. But she came back last year in a series <laughs> called Dalek Universe. So uh, she did. Tell me about that. Was that the plan all along to have her come back and do a a Dalek was, series with It David was Tennant? the plan
3: all along, and it was really it was so hard keeping that like just saying oh yeah and Anne's gone forever it was really hard keeping storm I'm terrible at keeping storm I find myself (laughs) saying absolutely nothing like oh I can't really talk about this at all because I don't know what's the spoiler and you know um, even who you've worked with you can't even say uh, oh yeah I've just spent three weeks working with David Tennant because to uh Huvian, that's a massive spoiler, isn't it? Uh, right. Obviously. Yeah. Or, you know, a picture of me and Tom together, or Christopher Eccleston, or you know, Chris is also a big friend of Joe's. Oh yeah. Um, see, we're all linked in this <laughs> in this universe.
1: I have uh, always wanted to hear some of Tom Baker's green room stories. I hear they're legendary.
3: They are legendary, you know, and it's the thing. It's one of the things I miss most about
1: being in studio
3: because um, uh, Tom still records, but we, it's all remote. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, the thing that's missing is still fantastic. He's still brilliant. He's still, he's still very, he's still, he's easily anybody will tell you he's the most prepped doctor. He's the one who has 10,000 notes on his script and, you know he's he's really worked through that script beforehand more than any other doctor i think um uh but the thing that's missing from a remote recording with anyone really is the crack in the green room and the the chat and the those stories and interactions and so yeah i i really miss that he still emails me and but it's not the same as you know uh uh-huh. I get I get an email every week from him with something funny but it's not the same as, you know, spending 2 hours with the man,
1: you know. Yeah. So, uh do we know if Anya's coming back in the future? <sighs> Again. Or, oh, you can't. Say. <laughs> <laughs> I would, you know, I would
3: always never say goodbye to these characters. Would, would you? <laughs> no. No. But um You know, they're great characters. Mark Seven um, and um, Anya, I think, work really well together. I love Joe Sims as well. He's so... um, He's just really an exemplary human being. I can't actually express how much I admire and love that man. He's really a great man. He's also very funny as well, but he's just this gorgeous compassionate human and does lots of good and and also fantastic actor as well so yeah um so you know would i would never say goodbye to that um particular um pair of companions Um, have you listened to all of the dialect universe yet i haven't listened to it so i've completely forgotten what happens
1: I am right now. I am in uh, the Dalek Protocol, which just happens right before that with Tom Baker.
3: Oh, I see. So you haven't listened to Dalek? Ah, well, you've got a treat in store.
1: Yeah, it's coming up the, soon. Do
3: you know the scripts are? Um, I can't believe I talked to you before I recorded that. I think I did. It was before I recorded that. Mm-hmm. Um, the scripts are beautiful. I mean, really moving wonderful. They were written, I think, during lockdown as well. So we all had a whiff of, of grief and retrospection. And um, we all had this thing that we were carrying with us and that we took to the recording and I used it in a really positive, vibrant wonderful zest for life with all of the things that, you know, in the way that you can only really appreciate something or or often you can only really appreciate something once it's gone. And uh, we'd all lost people, we'd all um, gone through the pandemic, we'd all lost hope, we'd all lost normality. Um, And these scripts are oh they really are beautiful and exciting and we just did all the things we did and said all the things that we needed to do and say to recapture our zeal Mm -hmm. so I think yeah give me a ring when you when you've listened to them if you agree with me I just that they were so lovely those scripts
1: well that sounds fun it looks something to look forward to
3: Mm. And
1: Jane, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you and thank you so much for being here again.
3: It's my absolute pleasure. I'm sorry for just talking about Idris's just incredibly (laughs) desirable physique. He is an amazing person as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the thing I took from Ultraviolet before I go is um, Joe's magical brain. That he created that, that he can create these extraordinary worlds that are completely believable, even though, you know, they're totally surreal. It just seemed entirely possible, the whole of ultraviolet, didn't it? It's like incredibly realistic, really, what you just assumed, well, obviously this, this is real, mm-hmm. you know, however bizarre. And he has a real on for that. He's very, he's very clever. I hope he never listens to this because <laughs> I don't want him to know how much I love him because he is too, um, he's too, he's um, he's too insulting a friend for that. <laughs> he's one of those people who say, you know he sends mean text messages. Uh-huh. So um,
1: yeah, he's very good at world building and uh, and dialogue. Just really is, on, yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: I didn't. He did. He kind of did Doctor Who really behind my back when he did the TV thing. I had no idea he was doing it. You know, I'd go for coffee for coffee with him. And he'd say, yeah, you know, I'm in Cardiff. And um, it's like, oh, right. OK, <laughs> or where wherever he was, I think it was. Yeah, it was Cardiff, wasn't mm-hmm. it? They recorded that. So, um, yeah, hopefully next time he does it, he can uh, give me a part.
1: Oh, that would be great.
3: Oh, my God, wouldn't it be great, be great to get on the TV as, you know, I don't know, play anything, be a monster. <laughs> I like to be a monster, an alien. I never know whether I, even when I get the script, I think, am I an alien? Is this how can she breathe out there if she's not an alien? But, you know, find out usually halfway through the script that I'm entirely human. Oh, <laughs> no. so so disappointing isn't it when you realize It's are just a human
1: right <laughs> well thanks jane
3: thank you
0: how's she doing
3: she is unlikely to crack early and i'm not sure how much she knows i'm not convinced she knew she was a decoy as for the experiment
0: I yes well i think we can make an educated guess there i hope none of us thinks this interest in blood disorders is down to philanthropy what they're researching is pollution, contamination of their food supply. Yeah, well, good, maybe they'll find a cure, because you've got some common interests. About as common as humans and cattle. What did we do when we discovered BSE was a threat? Did we go looking for a vaccine? No, we went for the most direct, short-term solution. A cull. They've done it before. The fire of London. Or do you really think that was a happy coincidence in the middle of a plague?
1: This month's guest is a long-time podcaster that you can hear regularly on the Doctor Who podcast. It's Ian Dudley. Ian, welcome to Who and Company. Hi, guys. I'm
4: very pleased to be here.
2: Well, it's about time.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, having gone back and looked through some of your previous guests, I feel entirely not worthy to be here, but thank you.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Well, let's start from the beginning. When did you first discover Doctor Who?
4: Well, compared to, I think, some of your guests, Doctor Who in the UK is just not the same as America. Uh, and the reason it's not the same is that here in the UK, certainly for my generation, it was just part of the cultural landscape. Uh, it was just a thing that everybody watched. It wasn't a genre show that fans watched. Everybody watched it. It was on, you know, Saturday night TV. It was part of just a regular background that, you know, all families would watch it, everyone knew about it. So I grew up watching it behind the sofa, so my mum tells me, um, and watched various episodes during the Tom Baker era, and I remember being terrified. Uh, I specifically remember being terrified of the, the robot parrot in the pirate planet, much to my <laughs> later embarrassment, because it's not really that scary. Um, but in terms of becoming an actual fan, as opposed to just a a member of the public who watches the program, which almost everyone of my generation was. Um, the pivotal moment for me was an aunt bought me Target books, in particular bought me Doctor and the Daleks by David Whittaker. And I loved it. And then I would go out to the local bookstores and start buying more Target books based on the covers and how cool they looked, and just consumed these books and loved them. And then The Five Doctors happened, and The Five Doctors was the first episode I watched as a fan, uh, as opposed to just, again, somebody who watched it because it happened to be on TV. And pretty much from then on in, I've been a huge fan. And there there was another part of that journey was the Radio Times did a 20th anniversary special on Doctor Who, which did sort of, you know, an episode guide to all the the previous seasons and sort of the most notable companions of Monsters and i remember buying that on holiday with my parents and just reading it and reading and rereading it until i'm pretty sure it just fell to pieces um and i have a copy now but it's a one that my wife bought me my original one is long disintegrated into pieces
2: we're three years away from the 20th anniversary of modern doctor who
4: is that true
2: am i doing math correct i think i'm doing math correct yeah yeah that's
4: horrifying (laughs) that's horrifying (laughs) It is weird yeah it is weird to think that we're now in what are we in we're in the Tom Baker era effectively uh, of the new new show I mean it's not quite the same because there's been a few years where there's been gaps or there's been you know episode light years it's not been the same as you know you go back to the Hartley era where there was you know 48 episodes in a year but yeah in terms of the general longevity it's pretty much there
2: yeah it's amazing So in all that time that you've been a fan um which Doctor has grabbed your attention the most? Who's your favorite? Or do you have one?
4: Uh, it's a classic fan question. I, I have a soft spot for Tom. I've always had a soft mm-hmm. spot for Tom. Um, he is the first Doctor I remember. And like James Bond, everyone has a soft spot for the first one they remember. Um, but Peter Davison was my first proper Doctor. And the one that I you know, first watched. I've always... I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to say all of them now because that's what us fans do. Um, I've always liked Patrick Troughton, though, particularly, from again, from those Target books. When I, when I read those Target books uh, at the very beginning of my fandom, some of those stories like uh, The, the Moonbase or Tomb of the Cybermen, I found really, really evocative. And I loved, I mean, it sounds bizarre to say this, I loved Pat Troughton's character as presented in those books. And I've always had a bit of a soft spot for that particular era as well.
2: I think one of the things that I've discovered with reading the Target novelizations is that some of the series that came early on that I haven't been as entertained as a show, I found really interesting as a novelization. Um, I think maybe because, and we frequently say sometimes it feels like it should it, it doesn't need to be as long as it is because we're, you know, we're watching four episodes in a night or six episodes in a night rather than watching it week to week the way you're, you should properly do it. And that's one of the things with the beauty of the novelizations. It really does uh, bring that level of mystery and excitement to to the the series, and it is nice when doctors are represented individually too. Uh, they kind of have their own themes and, and energy about the novelizations that that you know you get from watching them.
4: It can also be a curse, though, if you're a fan like me that experienced most of the stories in the book first Mm -hmm. and then often much later watch the actual episode i mean to go back to that example just there tomb of the cybermen it was still a lost episode when i uh, read the book and then it was later discovered now um, i I saw michelle recently on the dwp was saying that she'd never seen it and she watched it and she didn't think it lived up to its reputation and i can kind of get that that there's bits of it that are certainly from modern eyes a bit shonky they, they don't quite stand up and certainly compared to the book my imagination of that story was I think a tier above what they were able to actually show in the program uh, but I mean that's, that's always the nature of books and novels so there's been more than one story where when I've come to actually watch it it's really not quite the experience that I expected from my uh, uh, re- reading of the target books first
2: I, I mean I'm a librarian reading reading in books that's the way to go with me and and you know it's kind of hard to beat your own imagination brent and i just watched tomb of the cybermen recently for for an episode and it's just i I really enjoyed it in fact i think i liked it better this time around than i did the first time which i I was not expecting to
1: yeah is there a a favorite story that you have either in target or on television
4: um I there's there's a few. If I had to pick one, it would probably be Remembrance of the Daleks, the Sylvester McCoy story, uh, which is one that comes up I think uh, uh, a fair bit. Uh, I think this has just has got everything. It's got the action. It's got the coolness. It's got a very mysterious Doctor. I think it's paced perfectly. It's got some great special effects for the for the old show. Um, so that's one of my highlights. But the, the other ones I would go to regularly. Any yeah, of the there's certain stories that you, you know you show to new people you're trying to introduce to the, the thing the five doctors i still go back to the five doctors quite a lot because it's a great 101 introduction to hey this is what dr who's about um robots of death love robots of death can watch that over and over and over again uh spearhead from space another one that kind of another rebooty story where again you can go in relatively cold and it kind of explains the show's concepts to you so yeah they, they, they were probably that my, my go-to uh, episodes of the certainly the classic era
2: it's been almost fifteen years, uh, roughly. Yeah, almost fifteen years or so. But I, I remember I really liked uh, *Remorse of the Daleks* as a as a novelization too. I think it was it's yes, it's, it's a really it's paced very differently than a lot of the other stories leading up to that
4: that time. And it really fleshes out what you see on screen. A lot of the Target books, especially the Terrence Dicks ones, tend to be very by the numbers and then this happened, and then this happened, and it's it's pretty much just a novelization treatment of the script. Right. Um, Remembrance expands upon what you saw on the screen, and there, there's and the ones that stick in my mind is there's a lot of point of view prose of the special weapons dialogue. Right, and, right, you know, And how it was corrupted by the weapon that it carried, and it was a bit crazy and really interesting stuff. Obviously, you don't get at all on, on the screen because no. it never says anything, but it really adds flavor and texture to the story. Yeah,
2: I do remember that being the the takeaway.
1: Well, I'm guessing that your love of Doctor Who led you to podcasting. How did you get into podcasting?
4: I came into podcasting, well, listened to podcasts. So, God, I can't remember how many years ago now, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, I started listening to podcasts, particularly when I was on my commute driving, um, and I'd got back into Doctor Who. I kind of, like many people, I kind of, my, my fandom went away a lot, during the, the, the hiatus. Um, and I, did, I listened to loads of different podcasts, sort of tried different things. A lot of them just didn't click for me, but the Doctor Who podcast clicked for me, and I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the interplay between the different hosts. So I started listening to that fairly regularly. And then they at the time, they had a, a website with a forum. Remember forum software on websites? You know, you get that <laughs> anymore. Um, and I first joined the forum and was a fairly active member of what was a reasonably active forum. And then uh, volunteered to be a moderator on there, which is what Michelle did as well. In fact, we we were both the moderators on the forum. And then after a little while, uh, James at the DWP invited us to do a little sort of five-minute piece recording about Big Finish stories. And we got into a regular piece of doing these little five-minute bits. And then from there, I kind of escalated up into the, the main podcast and have been pretty much doing that ever since albeit we took our own little hiatus for a few years. But uh, yes, yeah, so that's 10 years now I've been doing the DWP, m- minus the hiatus in the middle.
1: I didn't realize that was your first podcasting experience because I, I remember listening to those when you first joined and uh, doing a lot of Big Finish audios with uh, with Michelle and having mm-hmm. um, the theme song coming in on each of your segments. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yep, yeah. Now, that was my, my first ever time podcasting. I hadn't done anything like that before. I, I mean, I'd done a few other things that were sort of vaguely similar. I'd written reviews for a DVD website way back in, when DVD was new. Uh, and I'd done some YouTube stuff and things like that uh, around drums. But uh, no, podcasting, that was my, my, it's my only podcast i have done other than the odd guest appearance like this. That's really cool. I was
2: just thinking about podcasting just in general and um, uh, realizing that um it's been 10 years i've been doing podcasting for 10 years as of like two weeks ago (laughs) it's like that's a decade that's a a Mm -hmm. substantial chunk of my life weird and it's and you know wouldn't have wouldn't have been into podcasting if i wasn't for doctor who i mean it's been 10 years of doctor who podcasting
4: yeah it's weird And, and particularly because it's changed so much in those times i mean when i was first doing it 10 years ago it was a bit of a niche thing. And now mm-hmm. everyone in the world is listening to podcasts. They're, they're huge. It, it's it's a very different thing to what it was. It's a lot more respectable now than it used to be. <laughs> Maybe not our podcasts, but podcasts generally.
2: Well, I think also because it seems like everyone has a podcast or has guested on a podcast. And, and so sort of, I think everyone understands a little bit what goes into it. Um, mm. And we can all be very snobbish about it if we have to. But otherwise, you know, it, the, the technology has also grown in a way that it's it's become a lot more accessible, which I appreciate.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't tend to get too involved in the the publishing side. I do editing and I do recording, but uh, for us, James handles all the publishing side of stuff. Which again, I think we make unusually complicated. I think it could be easier for us, but we've been doing it a long time, so we're kind of stuck up in our ways.
1: Well, Ian, you've you've reviewed a lot of uh, big finish audios. Over the last ten years, uh, are there any that stand out for you?
4: Mostly the classics, "Chimes of Midnight." I love "Chimes of Midnight." I can listen to that over and have done listened to it many times, and indeed listened to it with my family, who are not, who fans in the way I am, or indeed audio fans in the way I am. Um, there was a companion chronicle with the toy, the toy maker. I forget the name of it off the top of my head now, where it's. Um, I can't remember the companion's name either. This isn't going to go very well. Um, <laughs> it's the one where the universe is collapsing in and crushing, and it's. Oh, that does sound familiar. What's the Eighth Doctor's female companion? Which one? Charlie? Charlie. 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 Yeah, it's Charlie. Yeah, she's Ch- Charlie and the, and the Toy Maker, and she's trapped in this world, and the world is collapsing oh, and Solitaire. crushing down. Solitaire. That's the one. Yeah, that was brilliant. I absolutely loved that one. Um. Sort of Orion, the Cybermen story, the Cybermen series, the standalone series. Right. Uh, I remember uh, I Davros being very good as well. Um, lots, lots, lots of stuff. I mean, they're, they're, uh, it's very rare I've listened to a, a big finish that I've really, really disliked. There've been some, but m- for the most <laughs> part, they're, they're, they're good, solid stories.
2: When we frequently talk to folks about big finish, just kind of just a, a departure from Doctor Who, um, one of the things that I think we've, I think. i most frequently say is you know if if you if you didn't really enjoy colin baker's stuff or you know didn't enjoy it as much as the other ones you know always give it a chance with big finish is there is there um an actor a doctor a companion a writer any character that you feel like just big finish really celebrates it much better than than they got a chance to be celebrated on the show
4: i think almost all of them to be honest with you because Big Finish has done so much more stuff and often with so much more depth than they ever had time for on the TV show. I mean, Colin Baker is the obvious one or or even more so, Paul McGann. I mean, Paul McGann got one movie and a five minute clip, you know, and but on Big Finish, he's had series after series after series. I mean, he's created an entire generation of of the Doctor just in audio. So, I mean, I suppose he would have to be the exemplar of, of where Big Finish can take. A relatively small thing and really spin it out I mean another one that now comes to mind is Countermeasures you know they mm. were a squad on Remembrance of the Dalek that you you know they were bit part characters <laughs> in Remembrance of the Daleks and they got their own what four or five series run on Big Finish and they're great stories they're really good enjoyable stories so yeah they, I mean they've done this loads and loads of times I think nearly every character they turn to is bigger and better and richer for having been being Big Finish than it would be on just the TV alone
2: I had a conversation last week with um, a new friend who had never watched Doctor Who. We were just talking about how daunting a, a feat it is just to get involved. You know, do you go and start back with, you know, 2005? Do you start with Rose and make your way up? You know, or do you watch like one or two episodes to see if you're going to like Doctor Who? You know, it's, it's such an interesting conversation to like get to know a person uh, and make those suggestions on how... I like I think they would best go about it because it's, everyone's different. But I made the mistake of also mentioning Big Finish and just <laughs> the sheer scale of how much is out there. and it it got me wondering because they asked me with between the novelizations, the many, many book series, with Big Finish, with all of Doctor Who, is there more Doctor Who media? out there than there is star trek media now i know that if if the answer is yes that may change in the next couple of years because it feels like there's it's sort of like there's a 10-year gap between when they should have been celebrating star trek's 50th anniversary on what's going now because there's like seven or eight star trek shows but do you know between books and audios and stuff like that is doctor who has it eclipsed star trek did either of you know that the sheer scale
1: of, of extra media? I don't know for sure, but I would say that it has, especially with Big Finish.
2: Sure. That makes sense. It's the um, only other show uh, yeah. I can think of. Other Like, Star Trek and Doctor Who are the only two that has such a wide, expansive life outside of its initial television show.
1: Star Trek has a lot of books, though. Yeah.
2: Hmm. yeah Almost yeah, yeah. all written by Peter
4: David. <laughs> I, I would... I would hazard a guess that Doctor Who might have always been ahead because it did start four years earlier and had more material for a long, long time. If you think, you know, Star Trek didn't really get out of the gates in a big way until the movie and really Next Generation. Next Generation is when it really got out of the blocks and started creating lots. There, There were the books, but, you know, they were coming at a rate, but you had Doctor Who books as well. Sure. And meanwhile, Doctor Who had had series after series after series, year after year after year. It was on, constantly on the screens for 17 years. So I think it probably was ahead for quite a while. I think Star Trek's done an h- awful lot of catch-up in the last few years. And sure. I wouldn't want to call it now. That, I mean, particularly uh, post-Next Generation when you had, you know, DS9 and Voyager and, and all the other shows. And there's been many shows now since. As well as spin-off, I wouldn't even want to try and c- call it at this point. But uh, I, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily a new phenomenon. I think Doctor Who's probably been ahead, certainly at various points in its, in its history, if not all the time.
2: I think I'm just going back to your earlier point where you're saying, for you as a viewer, you know, Doctor Who is always, something that's always been on. And for me as a viewer in, in the states, Star Trek has always been on. And so it's you know you go to any thrift store and there's going to be a Star Trek book on the shelf. You know it's, it always feels like it's kind of been ubiquitous. It's always been there. Um, and so maybe I, that's kind of skewed uh, my view of it. Um, I'd be curious. I'm a numbers guy. I think it would be really interesting to see kind of how that <laughs> stacks up. Maybe if I'm sure, because the internet is what the internet is, and fans are what fans are. There's probably a really handy pie graph out there that'll that'll help me out. I'll I'll, I'll take a look at that, and if I find it, I'll I'll post it on our social media. them
4: has definitely gone and done that.
2: Oh, <laughs> I'm sure they're updating it weekly.
0: I had no choice. There's always a choice. They can't force you to do what you don't want.
3: No. No, they force you
1: to do what you do want. They're very big on free will.
0: They gave you a boy. A boy who wouldn't grow up. Who'd never tell his parents, a boy with no soul and humanity, you thought you could abuse with a clear conscience. What went wrong? I couldn't. Of course not, because he wasn't a child. Probably been around longer than you have. Whatever his body looks like. That doesn't work for you, does it? And, of course, you couldn't relive the experience on video. Bit of a disaster, really. So you went back to boys like Gary, no matter you were contagious. What's the difference?
3: They're taking over one way or
0: another. And you have no qualms about that? Humanity?
2: I missed out on humanity. Haven't you heard? Well, and that's the thing about fans. The fans like to do that kind of stuff. And, and you know, anytime we have a fan on the show, uh, you know, we invite them because we know that Doctor Who is not the end all and be all of their fandom to to bring a show that is non-Doctor Who to talk about. So, Ian, what show have you brought to talk with us?
4: I have brought a show called Ultraviolet. It's not the Mila Hovovich movie, but a BBC, no, sorry, but a British Uh, TV series from 1998 Uh, only ran for six episodes and was made by Joe Ahern who would later go on to do a lot of Christopher Eccleson's series of uh, Doctor Who and it's a little bit of a curio say only over six episodes it was never picked up and repeated and it showed on Channel 4 which is not one of our sort of front and centre stations here in the UK but those of us who watched it at the time absolutely loved it and it's got a great sort of mini cult following um not necessarily the easiest of things to find over the years but uh i i loved it back in the day and i, I still really enjoy it when I watch it now and it, it's a uh, quite an unusual little show and i think it's one that more people should should be be aware of and and, and view because i think it's a great little bit of tv I, i'm one of the reasons i also wanted to bring it to this is i'm really curious to see how your modern eyes view it because I've got a little bit of that nostalgia thing. You know, I watched it on broadcast and you always have a little bit of, you know, the rose-tinted glasses for stuff that you watched back in the day, especially things that were potentially a bit groundbreaking back in the day. You know, the the Babylon 5 effect where, you know, I still think of the special effects in Babylon 5 as being, wow, how can they do this? And of course, these days, they're actually very run-of-the-mill. But back then, it was absolute. I mean, I remember watching B5 with my sons and they just don't get why these special effects are brilliant because they're like, "It's not really good, Dad. What are you talking about?" It's like, "But yeah, but you had to be there, man." <laughs> so this is a show that you saw on transmission. Yes, I saw this on the original transmission back in 1998, uh, showing late night on Channel Four. I forgot what night it was, but yeah. And then a few years later, picked up a DVD copy, and for many years, that was the only way you could watch it was by getting. And then it's out of print of DVD for a long time, but it did, it does now show up on streaming services. So I've been able to rewatch it recently on a streaming service.
1: Drew, had you heard about this before? I had,
2: um, strangely enough. And, I'm, and I've am and i been trying to think about why I've heard of it. Um, this is, uh, let's see. I think I heard about this right when it came out. Um, because at the time I was sort of playing a, a fairly popular role-playing game called Vampire the Masquerade which was um, uh, a very 90s role-playing game in which you played vampires. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so one of the things that that company, White Wolf, that um, published is they would come out with source books. And frequently in those source books, it would mention source materials that you could get um, inspiration for other stories. And um, let's see, I was in a small college town and I was a, spent a lot of time in game stores. And when this came out, Someone at the store had uh, had made a VHS copy, and I hadn't watched it, but I'd heard about it, um, and uh, yeah, didn't know any of the cast, uh, didn't know Joe Hearn, you know, but I just heard it was this really cool uh, vampire TV show that really uh, kind of took the mythology and and stood it on its ear and took a really different approach to it, so. I gotta say, I probably forgot about the show up until you brought it up for this podcast, and I'm really glad you did because it's one that I'd always meant to to visit. How about you, Brent? Had you ever heard of this?
1: I'd heard about it, but I had like a like you, I hadn't watched it or um, followed up on it. Um, I just remember it was a show about vampires, and I was interested in seeing it. So, Ian, when you suggested it, I was like, "Yeah, I remember that. Cool, let's." Check this out. And um, so imagine my surprise when I saw the big names on here. Hmm. Uh, We'll talk about, I'm sure. you got Jack Davenport from Coupling and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And a very young Idris Elba, among others. And a friend of the show, Jane Slavin. But the show itself, I thought, was really good. You had the ongoing element of vampires, or leeches, that they call them here, taking over the world. But then you had episodes that focus on different aspects of that sort of standalone and um like you had the one episode where the woman's pregnant with vampire dna and there's one involving a child porn ring so it's not just about people getting attacked by vampires every week but yeah it was a good show to watch really liked it so ian um are vampire stories one of your big interests
4: I'm not a massive vampire fan, but I but I do like certain bits. I'm a massive fan of Blade, for example, the Wesley Snipes Blade, which came out the same year as, as um, Ultraviolet. I wouldn't say I watch every vampire thing that's out there. I'm, I did watch True Blood, um, but uh, I haven't watched Twilight, for example. No particular desire to either. Um, but bits and pieces. Uh, it de- kind of depends on the presentation. I find an awful lot of vampire... Media tends to be a bit campy to be honest with you you get a lot of the the callbacks to the the old Hammer Horror stuff and I think people struggle to take it as a genre seriously and they tend to fall into a certain amount of self-deprecation or self-parody or it just becomes a bit silly or it becomes a little bit OTT Um, one of the things that I really loved about Ultraviolet is it takes itself absolutely, completely dead seriously it doesn't in any way make fun of its premises or its genre. It takes the hot. I mean, there is no jokes at all. There is no humor in this show. Uh, there's no sort of knowing winks to camera or sort of you know making fun of the genre stereotypes. It takes itself completely deadly seriously. I mean, it's basically a pr- a police procedural based around vampires and treating it as a science thing. This is a science. It is a, an infection. Blade did some similar things actually in the same year, but that was obviously much more superhero, you know, action-oriented. Whereas this is much more in the tradition of something that maybe be CSI. Or, or there's obviously some X-Files DNA in there. Uh, and I think that gives it a very different feel. You know, it, it doesn't joke about what it's talking about. In fact, a lot of the story themes are extremely serious. And one of the things I find fascinating about it is that it takes some really troubling issues and then... and there's a bit of Black Mirror about it Mm. I'm I'm a big Black Mirror fan where it takes hey here's this concept here's this thing what if we just extrapolate that and say well what would happen with that concept if and I think Ultraviolet does a similar thing where it says well if you actually had vampires and they were a real thing and they were actually a force in the world well what would they do and logically what would that lead to and how would that play out and then just riffs on some of those themes and as part of that there's a moral ambiguity the whole show, you go right through all six episodes, and you're never a hundred percent sure if you're actually rooting for the good guys here, because you know quite a lot of what the the, the team that you're following are doing is quite brutal, and at various times they're, they're they're likened to being death squads or to being you know going out and being na- a Nazi death squad doing a Holocaust against vampires and things like this, um, and. At times, some of the tactics, the tactics they're using, you do start to think: Are these the good guys? Am I following the good guys? Um, and that I think that moral ambiguity flows throughout it, and and, and and also some of the stories you see, where you see the sympathetic sides of both sides of the stories, and and it's not it's not at all black and white.
2: Uh, agreed on all counts. Um, and there's there's about four points I wanna <laughs> I want to <laughs> explore in what you just said, but I want to go back just for briefly because I'm, I kind of curious where everyone's coming from. So you said that you weren't particularly, um, a a vampire aficionado. Like, you you know, you maybe didn't come to this show specifically because it was about vampires. Brent, how about you? What is your, I don't think we've ever really discussed vampires on the show. Um, how are you with the vampire genre?
1: Well, there was a point, um, just after college where I was really into vampires read a lot of books, read, watched a lot of movies. Um was really really into it and of course depending on who your writer is, your uh, your different tropes of the vampire legends are all different. Uh you know, some have sunlight hurting them, uh, burning them, some don't. You know, it depends on who your writer is. But uh I was into things like Dark Shadows. I watched all of those. End of You with a Vampire. Um, different things like that. When the Twilight movies come along, I, I was really excited about that. like, oh, cool, vampires are back. They're going to do this. Oh, no, what did they do? <laughs> <laughs> that first film, I was like, this is so horrible, I don't even want to watch the others. And I never have. That was horrific. Uh, but this show, like you said, it treats it... Uh, as if it were a real thing, and and I really like that.
2: I was obsessed with vampires. i um, I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like obsessed. Almost all of my favorite films from an early teenager forward were, were kind of around that. And and, um, this show feels even with six episodes, it has. You've kind of drawn some comparisons to X Files, but there's a a, a certain anthology series feel to it in that while everything did feed into a a main story arc, right? Us versus them. uh, The themes of it kind of explored different takes on the, the genre in very similar to, uh, there was a film early on in the early late seventies, early eighties. I can't remember what year it came out called the hunger, David Bowie and Susan Sarandon, um, uh, where, vampires aren't really vampires per se. Um, and and it, it kind of gave me a feel um, in that sense. You know, we weren't going to the hyperbolic. We weren't going for crosses. We're not going for capes, um, you know. Uh, and so that sort of procedural where um, uh, the the actress who, who plays March, Dr. March, has a kind of a, um, a Gillian Anderson Scully kind of haircut. And, and uh, uh, Idris Elba Is definitely not Mulder. um, is 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 kind of terrifying in his own right. Um, But the different story elements that Hearn writes about kind of plays with that genre in in some ways where I feel like it's sort of a if you were reading like six writers take their crack at the at the vampire genre, how different can they they feel? I I appreciate that because like all those stories. Excuse upon pun. Fed into the same vein, um, but I found them incredibly entertaining.
4: Hmm. I think uh, Idris Elba was practicing for playing Luther later on. Uh, yeah, a, with a lot yeah. of similarities there. Yeah, agreed. He, uh, it's
2: he's he's a very menacing character. Um, I got so excited to see him. I was like, oh, uh, like Brent mentioned, you know, Jack Davenport for for me is always going to be, you know, I I see him, I think coupling, um, and the the way he's playing his character michael in this is so very different from the character he's playing in coupling (laughs) um it took me just a little bit of time to kind of get used to that transition i've seen him in other things of course but um you know uh this is sort of around the same age as as he was when he was he was doing coupling um
4: but yeah it's good stuff and the way they put the technology in there as well. So they don't just, you know, obviously you get the, the it's an infection and there's the that sort of element to it. But then they very much take a science-based approach to well, how are we going to deal with this. So they have carbon bullets so that they can put wooden stakes through people's hearts with an MP5 rather than running around with a hammer and stake, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and they've taken the idea of vampires not showing up in mirrors and extrapolated it out. To nothing can record a vampire, so they don't appear on video. They don't appear on audio. They can't use cell phones. They don't leave fingerprints. And then again, they play with all of that. And one of the things I love is the way they've got the little attachments on their guns, that is a camera that's looking down the barrel of the gun. But it's not to be a sight. It's so that if you look in the camera and you can't see them, but you can see them with your eyes. Ah, oh, that's a vampire. So that's safe for me to shoot that person. And you think, yeah, that's the kind of thing that people would do. And that, that's actually a, a smart application of technology within the rules of the universe that they've just created. Oh, absolutely. Um, the the video camera
2: sight on the gun felt, uh, I don't know if you've ever done any role-playing, Ian, but it feels like <laughs> um, someone who is a, a game master who has crafted a story perfectly, a vampire story, and the players have kind of figured out what what you're doing and have gone, I attach a video camera to my gun so that if they don't show up I can shoot them and it's just like everything has fallen to the wayside. Uh (laughs) I
4: I've played campaigns like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. It it's um but it was really good, you know, and it you know, we don't get to see fangs, we don't get to see um you know, no one turns into a bat, no one flies, no one, to my knowledge, moves super fast. There's a couple of weird edits where I, I couldn't tell if they were trying to be moving fast or they just didn't have the technology to do the, the sort of thing that they wanted to do. Um, vampires do explode when you kill them, though. So uh, what I like about it is unlike something like, say, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which, of course, was already out at the time um, or was just just starting. Right. Because we were, we're just had its 25th anniversary like two weeks ago. Um, they actually use the death of the vampires as I think twice in the film, uh, in the, in the show as a way to move the plot forward in, in a very brilliant manner. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of course, I think it's episode five with, uh, Idris Elba's, uh, we're gonna spoil tons of stuff here, but like, uh, a, a escape in, in definitely the best acting Idris Elba did in that, um, I think that series, uh, know, yeah. from the, uh, the, whatever mm-hmm. the warehouse
4: he was, he was trapped in. And yeah, the, 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 that's the other element to this, is that there's a few shonky performances, but for the most part, the main cast really put the all into it and mm-hmm. they give it a great gravitas and a great drama. And you're right, Idris Elbow, trapped in that room, knowing he can't get out, knowing what's about to happen and wrestling with, should I kill myself to prevent them getting me? And in fact, you know, I remember watching this on first broadcast and you didn't know what was going to happen there. It was entirely possible. You're about to lose that main character because it, it had the feel of the show where mm-hmm. they might just go and do that. They might just go and do do, do that hard thing, um, and, and then yeah, he 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 uses a, a vampire as a as a handy breaching charge on the door to get out. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> no, it was
2: I I went from being this moment of ooh, this is an intense drama, um, to being ooh, this is a really clever way. I mean, it's. A, all, there's not a stinker in the bunch. I, I know that at one uh, early before the recording you had said that if you had to skip an episode, you could skip episode two, um, which I still think was interesting because each one takes what is a part of the vampire mythology and how do we bring it to the forefront into a modern storytelling and to explore that from a scientific reason. And then, you know, the mystery of who certain characters are in their own lineage is very cleverly done. Um I mean, if the show has any flaw, it's that it was made in the 90s. And not just from a technology standpoint, but just how storytelling was told. I think it's, it's done more than adequately. And I'm not knocking it in any way. I was at least entertained all the way through the entire series. But as a viewer... I think long form television series have progressed uh, in a way that it's a little bit more elegant storytelling. We, we come to expect certain things. And I think, I think the show did fine, but it's still the nineties and there's certain ways that people do things. I think there's a, there's, there's a certain level of nineties angst to the show that, um, that, uh, you know, it just, it just felt like of a time. So that's all.
4: I find there's a, uh... An odd, It's going to sound weird now. There's an odd poignancy to the atmosphere of it. And there's mm-hmm. certain media where I get this feeling, and I tend to adore that media. The other examples I would give is Blade Runner, where right. when I watch Blade Runner, I don't so much follow the plot and the story, because there's not a huge amount of plot and the story. There's but not. I just lose myself in the atmosphere of this world. And I, and, therefore, and there's a poignancy about the whole thing. Heat by Michael Mann has a similar effect for me, where and obviously there's, there's a lot of action there. But also... You lose yourself in this world, and I and, and it's a very serious world where bad things are happening to people and they're having to deal with that. And again, this word poignancy just comes to me whenever I watch these movies, and I get that same feeling about the atmosphere that Ultraviolet creates, that I find I'm losing myself in this little world for a little while, and you know, feeling sadness for the things that's happening in this world and for the situations that are coming up, and it creates that atmosphere that you can kind of lose yourself in. Hmm. But you're right. It 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 has aged. There are, I mean, even aside things like mobile phone stuff, because yeah, you know, lots of shows suffer from that. There were a few places where, yeah, it it tripped up over. You know, the, 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 there was there was one particular one that really jumped out at me in the the, the third story deals around uh, paedophilia and you know, child rings and things like this. And there was a point at one point where you see two presumably gay men coming out of a toilet. And they immediately make the leap to, oh, there's pedophiles around here, which just went ah, oh, uh. really jarred on, on my <laughs> nerves. And you know, it's probably just a trope of TV, and they were just leaning into the trope. But when you see it now, I think all oh, that that's that's not good. And, and but you know, a lot of old shows suffer from stuff, and it's by by far not the worst I've seen of that. It, it was a fleeting moment. Agreed. And actually,
2: that it's a very good example of not specifically just that taking it too far but they um characters in the show have made a couple of logical leaps based off of what little evidence they had to ah then if if this then that um that um and the show follows through with that and it was just sort of like well that could have breathed a little bit better but it wasn't terrible again wasn't terrible i think for the time that this show came out i think had i been able to watch this at the time this would have been one of my favorite shows um, mm. and i would have been furious that we only got
4: six episodes it does have the firefly effect of oh yes I if we could have had some more did it you does. recognize jack the, the the vampire in in episode one and uh, the main character's best friend jack
2: uh yeah so
4: stephen moyer right
2: yeah is that the actor and i'm uh, so he is in is he in
4: true blood He's Bill in True Blood. He is the vampire in True Blood. Yeah. Which you'd you'd almost never guess it was the same guy from looking at them. I I didn't realize until quite a lot later, hang on a minute, that's the same guy. Because (laughs) his performance here, despite being a vampire again, is completely different from what he did as Bill. And he looks like a totally different person. Totally different person. Yeah. um, I've only seen very little of True Blood. I've never actually
2: finished the the series. I think I saw most of, if not all of, um, the first season. And then I don't think I've ever watched it. It further so um if i'm not mistaken bill is not the main character in that first season they have a um, different character and he kind of moves in later am I, am I, it's been a decade since i've seen it so um he, I- he
4: was the i mean again it's a long time since i've watched it he was the main vampire that Suki has this whole you know gothic romance thing going on with I'm sorry, I I mean, maybe you're right. I can't remember. It's it's a long time since I watched it as well. (laughs) I feel and then potential spoilers. I guess for I don't know. Brent, are you a True Blood fan? Can you?
1: I've only seen the first episode. Okay, and it looks good. I just haven't had time to go into it.
2: I I thought it was a a good show. It just was one of those shows where I think like I watch it right as the show came out, and then uh, I think my ability to watch it, like it came out on HBO, maybe um, went away. And if I couldn't watch it at the time, I got into something else. Yada yada yada. There's so much good television, right, out there that uh, you know, for vampire fans who who really have true blood. I apologize. I'll probably get to it eventually. Um, <laughs> I still really like the genre. We I I was doing some research into just the sheer amount of vampire films that that come out. Uh, especially in the 80s, like it's 80s and early 90s. It's amazing. There were three to five vampire films coming out every single year for almost a 20 year period in the United States alone. Um, And then the UK, of course, has like all the Hammer Dracula films that that came out and those were coming out every other year, essentially, if not every year. Um, It's a it's a really impressive genre that I don't feel like we have really jumped back into in the last 10 years or so. uh, But maybe who knows? Well, uh, we'll be moving ahead with that. I'm sure someone can probably jump up and give me an example of how I'm wrong in that. I just maybe just haven't been going to the theaters and watching them.
4: Oh, sorry, Twilight.
2: Yes, we had a ton of Twilight, Paranormal Romance. Uh, And I would like to say this, I actually kind of enjoyed the first Twilight movie. I hadn't read the books and uh, I saw it and I thought there were some really interesting ideas. Uh, The sparkling didn't bother me as much because again, you know, it's always an interesting take. Uh, And then I started watching the second I watched the second one in the theaters, and I I don't think I stopped from there. Not, you know, if you like it, I'm I'm not going to complain. I'm just saying it wasn't for me.
4: Yeah, everyone gets to watch what they like. Uh, I mean, one of the things I like about Ultraviolet is that it stands out in a genre that has a lot of material, as you say, and I mean, an awful lot of that leans hard into the sort of gothic, romantic, you know, undying love thing, you know, which is not my my scene and Bizarrely, because I I know many, many goths and hung around in the goth scene for a long time, but I've never been hugely into that whole sort of Anne Rice type type thing. An awful lot of the vampire material leans into that very sort of you know eternal love type thing, Um, and *Ultraviolet* is completely, utterly different. It plays in a totally different way, in that sort of cold, hard scientific approach to it. And I think being able to stand out in the genre is actually quite a tricky thing that's maybe why we don't see so much of it these days is that it's been mined out pretty hard uh over the last uh well what 40 50 years i suppose if you go back to the hammers as well sure
2: actually since we're gonna on the subject of um everlasting love i think that was the other thing that i kind of didn't love about it is the obsession with kirsty um Mm. uh i the problem with episode one with the pilot is a lot happens in the first 10 minutes that is supposed to build who our characters are that I don't feel uh, clearly got like why Mike likes Kirsty. Um, I feel like there's, we, I would have liked a little bit more um, because he just comes across as being really weirdly obsessed with her um, in a dangerous sort of way, which, you know, maybe that works for the, for the show but i don't feel like he played off on that uh that same sort of what we were being presented um in in later episodes um so yeah the uh, you know fine actors all around um but just the uh mike you're obsessed with her but why i don't (laughs) i don't i don't know why like we were never really given a reason for that obsession um and i would agree i yeah no, it's just no, it's just agree. you know character motivation is 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 very important and I think we're we're given a because there's only really let's be fair five main actors who appear in all six of the episodes, right? Um and I feel like we have the motivation for four of the characters and I think um I, I'm going to colette I forgot her her name now. Um, but Kirstie, the actress of Kirstie, her character just reacts to stuff. I don't feel like she's a character so much as she is uh, a plot device for Mike to to motivate him. It's almost like fridging. Like if they had killed her early on and he was doing it for her memory, I would like, like it's that bad where it's like she's around and all these things happen to her. And he makes these choices because of her. But I never understood like who she is as a character. Does that, does that make sense? It's no, it it's, makes total sense. it's fine. You know, again, we're talking 20, I don't know how many years, 25 years, almost 24 years on. People are better at writing well-rounded characters. But I think the characters in this are, are fairly well-rounded. And I think that everyone's reason for taking part in, I'm going to use the term crusade, um, are pretty good, are pretty good. You know, there's an intensity, especially to um, certain characters, especially our. Um, um, what is what is the institution that that Mike actually moves on to work for? I keep on. It has a name, but it's it's kind of complicated. But... The Murder Squad. Yeah, what... yeah, yeah right. The squad, like they mention yeah. it, and it's kind of like the fact that you know we're learning about it as Mike is learning about it. But um, the our our, our lead uh, in the in the crusades um, intensity for this crusade against the the, the leeches the the uh, the code Vs the code fives. It's, it's clever. It's good. I mean, it's good. Like I, I think every time I think about it, I feel like uh, I would read the novelizations of this of this series. <laughs> like I think there would be you know I'm sure there's some fabulous fanfic out there there's probably some really top-notch stuff
1: well as we're talking about characters is is there are there any characters that stand out to you like the the main is there do you have a favorite character here
4: uh it's an ensemble cast and i think it's right. difficult to pick one out um i love idris elba you know i mean it's weird for me actually because in everything i've ever seen of idris elba ever since i still think of him as being in this because this is where i saw him first so I still think, oh yeah, look, it's that guy from Ultraviolet. He's turned up in Avengers. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I'm the
1: same way. Every time I see him yeah. now, I
4: think, oh, it's Luther. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because <laughs> that's where <laughs> and, I first saw. And um, I, I saw a great review of his performance in this that he does lots of trouser acting, by which they mean that whenever he's being serious, he puts his hands in his pockets and stomps <laughs> around with his hands in his pockets. And he, and when I mean, you see that, he absolutely does this, and he does it in Luther as well. So that's obviously his prop du jour is. Hands in pockets to, to to show how serious he is, um, but no, that, I think I think they're all good. I I, I agree with you that the cursed arc is probably the weakest point of the show. Uh, I don't think the character comes over particularly well. I don't think the motivations work all that well, especially you know she, she's just you know been jilted by her fiance like or the night before their wedding, and then she seems to essentially forget about that within five minutes and is. Making eyes at uh, the the other guy, and it's like none of this really seems to quite stack up. Um, And yeah, it's it's used as a through line in the series. I don't know if maybe she was supposed to be our our contact point for the real world of people who are outside the circle, and you know, that traditional companion rolling Doctor Who, where the companion is supposed to be your entry point into the world. I don't know if they were trying to do something like that with it, but I don't think that particular line really works. And I, I was usually thinking, particularly on rewatches can, can, can we can we get on to the can we get back to cameras and shooting vampires with uh, carbon bullets?
1: <laughs> how about you Brett did you have a favorite character um well I, I agree that uh i don't some of the characters i don't think were fleshed out enough but uh, i think to me angie was the one that i felt like i knew the most about mm-hmm. so i would say she was probably my favorite she had a famous scientist husband and twin daughters and they were in a horrible wreck. And her husband and one of the girls died. And you discover he's a vampire. So that part at the end. Since we're doing spoilers. The big part at the end. She keeps holding Idris Elba's character off. From killing him. Uh, so that. Because she, she thinks that's her husband. She You can see her desperation. That she thought her husband was going to be resurrected. So she's trying to hold him off. And um. Anyway, I, I just I felt for her character more than I did the others, even though I love seeing Idris Elba kick ass. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, no. But, I, but I, even it's... Idris had, had a great backstory there that he'd been out in was it Afghanistan. He'd been, and then um, a, a vampire attacked his squad, and actually he admits that he ran away. Yeah, and while all of his while all of his squad mates stayed and tried to fight and all got slaughtered for it, he mm-hmm. ran, and that's the only reason he's still alive. And you can see how it burns him up, that this action man who wants to go out and fight them, but he's only there because he ran away and abandoned his squad mates. And, you know, the, 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 character, the, the sort of believability he brings to that story and the depth it gives, what would otherwise be quite a one-dimensional character, you know, the heavy. You know, lots of shows have the heavy who just turns up and, you know, beats everybody up and shoots them without any sort of remorse but they have actually given some depth and meaning to that which is uh, i really appreciate it and i thought he did he played it really well
2: yeah agreed actually that moment and it's it's a very slight moment they don't dwell on it there's no musical sting um it just how did you how did you survive and he's like i ran yeah it's good it's good and and I, i i wasn't really impressed with him as a character, I think it's did a fine job with it because it, he does is presented essentially as the, the, the muscle uh, and the intimidating guy. And um, uh, that moment is definitely a humanizing moment. And we also get the the moment at the end of five where, you know, where we, we've already mentioned about him in the warehouse. That was a really kind of cool humanizing moment. Um, uh, I think it's either end of five, beginning of six, where he has that moment with Angie at back at Angie's place where they're both gone through this, like, horrific ordeal but neither one of them knows what the other has actually gone through but we as an audience know and like you think oh this is a molder and scully because they are presented as kind of molder and scully characters again um very different from both of those characters but uh like it's a will they won't they moment which i thought was really really well done um hmm. for me as far as favorite character um it was tricky because uh, you had mentioned kind of the moral ambiguity of, of the show because. Um, every time a vampire comes on screen with uh, after episode two, even though they're they're doing some pretty horrific stuff, their argument is, no, this is like a war and you're pers- actively pursuing us. like I f- I definitely like the argument because I feel like every time the argument they're presenting it to to Mike, uh Michael, uh it's it's pretty convincing and it definitely throws him for a loop as to where he stands and because he wants more information. He's a police officer, right? Um, and I really liked, um, they call him John Doe for the first episode and then towards the end we find out he's Dr. Paul Hoyle, um, who is the, uh, the vampire that appears in the coffin that they bring into the base. And there's something about this uh, sympathetic charm to the character as he's presenting his case and you know there's He's pl- he's manipulating the, the conversation, but he's doing it in such a really good way. And I think it's a really good piece of acting by um, the, the actor's name is Corn Redgrave, who I couldn't tell you what else they've been in. I'm, I'm sure I could look it up, but um,
1: I, I did look it up. And he is he was the brother of uh, Lynn Redgrave. And um, who's the other Redgrave? Uh,
2: Vanessa. Vanessa.
1: Vanessa. Yeah. Oh, wow. OK, cool.
4: Well, go Redgraves. It's a very talented family, (laughs) that. Um, Just just on that, a, a, a little minor point, the way he emerges from his coffin in a cell that is surrounded by mirrors, and the way they shot that, that you see him, but you don't see his reflection, but you see the guards all around him. Yes. I mean, it probably wasn't a particularly difficult practical effect, but they pull it off just perfectly. And they don't draw attention to it either, and it just again it just brings that believability to it. And yeah, his performance was really powerful, and the way he's talking about how humans are destroying the earth, you know, this is an environmental message, you know, twenty four years ago, and you know, and he's right, and the stuff he's talking about is correct, and you do get the feeling of you know, are we are we the good guys here, or are they the are they the bad guys? It's not that clear cut.
1: Yeah, one uh, of the things where they 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 use. Um, in a subtle way was the end of episode five where he's getting ready to shoot Kirsty, and he gets attacked and she runs away. And just a really split second. You see her run past a, a mirror on the way out and you see her reflection. Yeah. So, you know, she's not a vampire. I
2: thought that was a goof. I, I honestly, I thought it was a goof because, <laughs> um, I thought that, he holds the he, it's, it's a good scene because like, you know, he realizes she says something. She knows something that she's not supposed to know. He goes into the bathroom for a moment. He takes the butt of his gun. He breaks the mirror. He takes the, the mirror. He's shaking so hard. The mirror is cutting into his hand and he holds it up and he looks and he doesn't see her reflection. And I was like, oh, OK, that's a, a very clever way of doing it, knowing that his gun with his special video camera is not there. And he goes to shoot her. They stop him from doing so. She runs away. And I was just like, this is terrible. How did they get? There's clearly a mirror right there. (laughs) So what I missed very clearly was the that he is so unstable that he didn't, he wasn't thinking straight, and he missed the point that she probably would have had a, uh, a reflection had he been, he had done his part a little better. So and he almost shot her. I think I feel like that was i'm a pretty savvy viewer i feel like maybe if i'm getting confused by that maybe it needed to be edited a little better but um on second viewing it's a very powerful scene being able
4: to see her reflection knowing that he almost made a terrible act, uh, mistake yeah having made a ter- similar terrible mistake uh, a couple of episodes earlier where he yes it gets, can- get, gets uh, faked out by by seeing a video recording that he thinks is actually a live camera. And, you know, that story, that's, that's in the, the, the pedophile story was another example of where it takes things in directions. You don't, I mean, firstly, it's showing you some pretty horrible examples of humanity. Yes. And, and again, showing, you know, we're not sweetness and light here. Um, but then it, 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 it turns the whole thing on its head that actually it's, it's, it's the kids that are preying on, on the adults rather than the other way around. Um, Again, it just, just turns these things in, in, in ways you don't expect it to go. And again, you, you see him shooting these people that are objectively horrific people, but they're getting shot and they don't deserve to get shot. And you're into that, again, that moral ambiguity of, you know, that they are going out and being judged dread here and should they really be doing that kind of thing? It, it's it's There's some really powerful stuff that they play with here and play it as a very straight bat as well, uh, mm. of, of not trying to, you know... To, you know, Star Trek has been famous in the past for so sometimes taking moral stories and being really trite about it, right. uh, or very one-dimensional about it. But here, they very much just throw it all out there and show all sides and say, you know what, this this stuff isn't easy. Actually, I think that episode
2: um, that you were just referring, I think was my favorite of the of the six, um, because even though it 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 does tie in with the greater mystery of what is going on, and actually in a very important way towards the end. What is happening isn't clear until like the last five minutes of the episode. And it's a really good mystery because we, the way we are parceled out bits of information, um, again, uh, bad, bad leaps of judgment based off of two gentlemen exiting uh, a bathroom. Um, But in that, I I think in that story, as we kind of learn information, it's it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating way of portraying that.
4: And I do think, I mean, I thought it was fascinating your comment at the beginning of this is like a RPG campaign mm-hmm. because a lot of these episodes totally play out like, like a Call of Cthulhu story, to be honest with you. Sure. Where there's a weird mystery, there's clues, and they're following it up, and then it goes in weird directions, and you t- find out that there's some power behind this that's doing something, and they've got to solve it and figure it out. And I, and I think you're right. A lot of this plays out of, yeah, I, I've played in campaigns with, Player, player parties that would have totally have done a lot of the stuff you see them doing here including the that using the vampire as a breaching charge to get out of the door that that's totally a player move <laughs> no it yeah it is
2: absolutely you know if if i'm running a, a call of cthulhu campaign um it is not a successful campaign unless uh all of my players are dead or insane by the end of it because you are playing a story about uh madness and death um And it's not, it's not designed to, to be survived. Um, but this show doesn't end that way. (laughs) You know, we get, we only get six episodes. The show ends. Um, how, how satisfied were you with the, uh, the ending? I mean, clearly you probably, I wanted more. I want a season two of it. We're never going to get it. Um, but how satisfied are you with the
4: way the, the six episode series ends? I think they land the six episodes neatly. I think it comes to a resting point. It ties off the major loose ends of what they've been talking about then and there. They, to some extent, resolve the who are the good guys, who are the bad guys here, because they show the, 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 the grander plot that the, the vampires have, which then makes it a bit clearer that, no, actually, it, that this isn't a good thing they're trying to do here. Um... It would have been nice to have seen more. I mean, you've always got to be careful with this stuff because, again, like, like Firefly, when you only have such a small amount of content, that's so of such high quality, you know, it's, it's easy to think, oh, it, we would have had five seasons at this quality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the genre is replete with shows where they had, you know, a great first season and then it fell off a cliff hard and never came back. And actually, its reputation ends up being not brilliant because they never managed to carry on or pushed it beyond when they should have done and sure. kept it going past the point where they should have sort of killed it off so who knows but I, I think there was definitely a bigger story to be told here and that idea of taking a different concept every week and saying well if we're in a world and we've got vampires and we've got all this technology what if that yeah. what would happen if you had a vampire baby in a woman and she was having a, what looks like a phantom pregnancy but isn't and how would you deal with that situation or you know the generations where someone's skipping over and and, and things like that, doing the Dorian Gray routine. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots more of those things that they could have done, lots more space they could have explored, uh, and interesting directions they could have taken it. I certainly think it could have stood another series or two and kept the quality up. Um, But we'll never know, because yeah, it never got picked up, it never got repeated. I
2: mean, also, you're looking at the same writer and director for every single episode, and that's a really difficult thing for one person to have to carry on their shoulders. and In the UK that's that's sort of i mean it's certainly less commonplace now than it was but uh you i think of a number of shows where i i watch and it's the same person doing all of it maybe they only run three or four seasons at most because after a while i imagine that pressure can be rough brent um how did you feel about the ending were you satisfied as a
1: series end season end yeah yeah i thought it ended Pretty well. I, it tied up everything, I thought, uh, for mm-hmm. the most part. I didn't expect the twist at the end. That, <laughs> yeah. that was really good. But wow, that poor Kirsty. She's going to need lots of therapy. Lots of therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Agreed. Agreed. No, I mean, I think I, th- I may mean, I agree with ex- what you say. I, I think that the um, it, it tied up Series 1. It definitely set up Series 2, which we don't have. But unlike some shows... I think we're fine with it. I think if we had ended on a massive cliffhanger and not gotten the payoff, I think I, I probably wouldn't have thought as fondly of the show. Because, I, I mean, had it done that and I had watched it in 1998,
1: I probably would have been still ticked off. Yeah. That's one yeah. thing I like about uh, modern television is that, for the most part, a show knows when it's going to be canceled or, or end – before it does so they have time to put together a somewhat decent finale whereas back in the day you didn't know whether your show was going to get picked up or not until after your last episode went out mm-hmm. so there were a lot of shows in the 70s and the 80s and everything where well, they end on cliffhangers and you never saw what happened i think one of the biggest ones i saw was uh, there was a show called crime story that used to come on after miami vice and it was in the gangster days in Vegas. And at the end of episode two, these two guys, the main good guy and the main bad guy, are fighting on a plane. The pilot is shot. The, the plane's going down into the, uh, into the ocean, and they're fighting each other. And it freezes and goes off and never came back. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's probably a ton of really good fanfic
2: about that one as well. Um, <laughs> I, this is for everybody. Um, do you think that they could bring this show back? Like if this show, I don't know how to, how to phrase this. I mean, it, it, it exists clearly from 1998, but do you think this approach to vampires could work today? Do you think it's too similar to kind of the other, I mean, cause there's a lot of popular vampire shows out there. Um, you know, uh, do you think it's too similar to the stuff that's come after it to to really draw the same kind of attention?
4: I don't think I've ever seen another show that's quite like this. You oh, see bits of it. you know. Yeah. If you see the, the very technical approach to fighting vampires, you can see some clear parallels with Blade, for example. But you couldn't possibly say that they're the same thing or that they, they, they ape each other. And you see bits of that in, in some of the other shows. I've never seen another show that takes quite the dramatic approach that this one does. I'm, I am I don't think you could carry it on now. I think you could totally reboot it. I think there's a, a great concept in there that could be rebooted. Uh, and a sort of a BSG style reboot where, where you, you take the core ideas and then you basically start again and, and tell the story again. Uh, with modern sensibilities and, and, you know, modern production techniques. And I think there's, there's a great show to be made there. Whether anyone will do it, or whether anyone will go and mind that hold, I don't know. It, it's a, a relatively unknown show. Those who know about it know about it because we watched it at the time, we loved it. But it doesn't have a huge, it's not, it's not like a Firefly where there's this sort of, you know, loyal fan base out there that's forever going on about, you know, supporting it and passing it around. It, it it's it, it is what it is and it's 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 very much sort of uh, often an attic somewhere r- rather than uh, be, being a major part of, of popular culture so i don't know but you, you never know you never know you know you, you might get a russell t davies style character who who saw it back in the day loved it uh, has now become you know a, a mover and a shaker in the industry and says you know what that's going to be my next thing that i'm going to do you, you know you, you could see someone doing something like that
2: uh you know we kind of mentioned true blood already the the end the idea of synthetic blood uh and then true blood kind of like it feels like there that idea jumped but since true blood involves heavy magic and doesn't take the science aspect of it I, you know it's it's a complete departure from it but yeah no i think it would be i think it would be um i think if the show hadn't existed and then came out today um with you could probably do all six of these stories. Um, do throw four more in there and give it a little bit more of a chance to breathe and get some time to spend with the characters. Uh, really play up the religion aspect of it versus science. Um, maybe spend some time with a couple of really good vampire characters. We don't really get a lot of vampire characters that stick around uh, for more than an episode. They're they're usually detached pretty quickly. I would have liked maybe uh, one who's caught in episode two and, and stays with them until the end of the season uh, or maybe even uh, into season two. I think that would work really well. And I, I think it would also require um, like a, an HBO uh, kind of a show or a Netflix show where you didn't have to worry about commercials and you didn't have to worry about censors and you could really go where the, the, the kind of the show needed to go. How about you, Brent? Do you think it would work?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, especially nowadays. I, I think that would actually be a, a big show if they were to bring this back now um, and reboot it. It would have to be rebooted. Although, uh, I think if, there was, uh, if they had have done a season two back then, usually your uh, second or third season, your big thing is to expose the secret to the world. So I I'm, right. I'm think eventually... Showing the world that vampires are real could be anywhere causing mass panic. I'm sure that would have happened.
2: Yeah, that's definitely feels like your well, we're going to go three, three seasons and out. Uh, That's definitely the beginning, the the cliffhanger of season, end of season two, beginning of season three. That's how you, you uh, probably make that arc. That's probably what I would do, but who knows? Then they get a spin-off series with some of the more, the cuter characters, but you move (laughs) it to the CW, you throw some superheroes in there.
4: I think on a streaming platform, it could find its audience, because I think the main reason that more people don't know about this is it was on a relatively obscure British TV station on like a Friday night or something, and... Back then, we had five terrestrial stations in the UK. We didn't really have much in the way of satellite or cable TV. That didn't really come around until a few years later, and in a big way, there was obviously no streaming. It was prior to any streaming. And I just don't think enough people saw it, and it didn't get any international audience. There was an attempt to remake it in America, but it never got past the pilot, and from what I understand, the pilot wasn't great. I've never seen it. We Um, don't
2: generally do a good job with... UK shows made from that time period, like you know, like I think like The Office has been possibly one of the most successful television programs that isn't a game show uh, that that's come over. So,
4: yeah. I think if you make it today, it would it would find an audience. You know, mm-hmm. it, it would absolutely be on a Netflix or an Amazon Prime or whatever, and a, a much broader international audience would be able to access it than was that was the case in uh, back in, in 1998 where. You know, a few people like me who happened to be in on a Friday night and not going out to the pub because I was sad at the time, you know, we watched this thing. And, you know, there's a, there's a few of us like that, but it never had a massive audience. It never got enough of an audience or enough of a cultural impact to get the hooks you need to, to leverage up and get, and get renewed and, and become a cultural force. I think today the whole landscape is different, and a, a cool idea like this could really find an audience and go places.
2: Agreed. And and for listeners who are interested, if you're in the States, um, you know the, the only place that you can find this, it's occasionally popped up on um, YouTube, but uh, 2BTUBI has it, uh, the full series. It's got very limited commercial breaks. Um, strangely enough, Idris Elba popped up on several of the commercials um, that while I was watching, mm-hmm. so it was weird to see it cut from him to him now in a hot tub talking about I don't know, uh, B&Bs or credit lines i can't remember what it was but um <laughs> surreal but you know it's a free streaming service so that's um, an advantage and it's definitely one that i think once this episode goes out i'm gonna kind of pu- publish links on social media because i th- i think certainly my crowd uh folks i hang out with would probably if they haven't already heard of it would would probably really dig it and it's such a small time commitment mm. um so that's that's really cool Ian before we let you go uh, are any upcoming projects uh, that you want to let us know about
4: uh, only my ongoing uh, work with the, the Doctor Who podcast we're, we're getting to the end of our Christopher Eccleston retrospective we've just got one or two more episodes to, do, to go on that and I suspect we might carry that on and go into a David Tennant retrospective as well uh, I'm in negotiations right now so I call dibs on fear. Quite a bit. I said
2: I called dibs on fear her. <laughs>
4: <laughs> We've uh, yeah, a bit more material to work with there. So yeah, there's uh, the there's always the DWP, and we're, we're getting out and about again now. So I'll, I'll hopefully be going back to some of the BFI showings again soon, and uh, maybe even get to a convention or two. One of these days, I want to I want to come back and do an American Con because the I, I did Gallifrey nine years ago now and it was like nothing we have in the uk at all we just don't have we don't have that kind of uh convention here and uh i i, I would but LA's a long way to go so yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about what i might do there
2: yeah absolutely love to see you there it would be cool to be able to to hang out at a con with
4: you well uh again thank you so much for for joining us today Oh, you're welcome. It's been, been great fun and great to talk about. I, I've really enjoyed seeing your modern take and how you've enjoyed the show as much as I have, even with modern eyes, for a show that I've been sort of watching as a little sort of uh, guilty pleasure for the last 24 years.
2: Oh, yeah. I, I actually can't wait to talk to you about other recommendations you might have because uh, if, if this is you know, like <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company thanks for joining us at who and company special shout out to pixel who for providing our logo they can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who and company can be found on iheartradio.com and spotify or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com contact us on twitter at Company. support the show on patreon.com slash Company, or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com thanks and see you next month
3: Oh wow. yeah, ultraviolet though um, I said I could drive It was on my CV that I could drive uh-huh. And they gave me The most beautiful BMW Z3 sports car wow. And said you could take it um, Take it round town If you want, we were filming in the centre Of London And I hadn't passed my test I couldn't drive at all uh- <laughs> <clears throat> And I was like oh okay um, Now I think I'm just going to No, I'll just drive it on the actual you know on the take I don't have to drive it now and they were like don't you want to take it for a spin I thought no it's illegal I'm not allowed to drive it (laughs) so I I just drove it you know I think I'd had about four driving lessons I don't know how I did it and it was this oh my god 30 grams worth of car
1: oh yeah it's a beautiful car
3: Yeah. yeah anyway about the only time I'll be driving is Z3, I think I'm not really BMW
0: girl. More of,
3: a, more of an old banger myself.